So we are starting a new series today on the life of Gideon. And as we uh, do that and jump into to his life, uh, to start off to say is Gideon is a judge. Okay? And a judge or people in this season of Israel's history that oftentimes is confusing, oftentimes we even glance over it, um, and, and it was the, uh, this, this kind of odd, awkward phase of Israel's history from after they went into the promised land with Joshua and they took over all this new land and, you know, after they left Egypt with Moses and wandered in the desert and then Joshua took them into the promised land and then they settle and then there's this, this period of the judges where God, um, you know, is, is silent a lot of the time and there's just a lot of struggle that happens and, and at the end of this, this period of the judges is when um, God raises up earthly kings for Israel and that's when, again, as they beg, God for an earthly king, and that's when, again, Saul gets anointed as the first earthly king that leads to David, and then on through Israel's history. But th- this phase of Israel's history is one that, like I said, it's a bit confusing. Um, it's the one that it's also very tragic. It's very um, bloody and, and horrible kind of part of the Bible. And yet this phase of Israel's history is also part of the reason why we know that the Bible's true. Because if you were just making it up, Right? And, and just wanting to, again, for whatever reason to make it up and just kind of lead all of us down a, a false path, this would not be in the Bible. Okay? Because these stories are just so hard, right? And they're tragic and they're violent. And, and again, to see just exactly what's going on here is somewhat of a mystery. Now, with that said, is as we walk through the life of Gideon, and Gideon is one of the judges that God had raised up during the season. As we walk through this, I want to give us kind of a big idea for each uh, series and each phase of Gideon's life as we go through. And so today we're going to start with this first big idea. And the big idea is that God's plan is bigger than my viewpoint. Okay, God's plan is bigger than my viewpoint. And we start with this big idea today. We're going to see that again in this, this first, you know, um, lesson out of Gideon's life. But, but also just for this phase of Israel's history and this, this part of Scripture right, is that this is really true, that God's plan is bigger than this one season, than this kind of confusing part of Israel's history. Like, why was it a part of it? And because God's plan is bigger than their, their viewpoint in that moment. Okay, and God really does work through this season, and it's included because, one, it's what happened, right, but also there are many lessons for us to learn during this, this section of Scripture in the season of Israel's, uh, you know, history and walk with God. And so, um, again, to, to explain kind of this foundation of the judges and, and this, this, this season of, the, of Scripture, um, we're going to watch uh, just this, this short video that explains the foundation of judges and why we have it and, and what is it accomplishing and what we can learn from it. So we're going to start off the message today and just kind of laying the foundation of, of the book of Judges and, and what does it teach us and what does it show us about God's plan and bigger viewpoint for Israel. So we're going to watch this, this video together. The book of Judges. So remember, after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the promised land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. 
The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now, don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in and we can explore each part a bit more. The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the Promised Land. And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter 1 gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now, remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshiping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people, and that does not happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again, and it would all start over. This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section of the book. It gets repeated for each of the six main judges whose stories are told here. So as you see this, again, this foundation of the book of Judges, right? And, and Israel's continual spiral downwards, further and further away from God. And now Gideon is the fourth judge in this line of judges that are raised up and, and that God uses again to deliver Israel, right, as they continue around the cycle over and over and over again. And that um, gives us, um, again, this, um, this part then where Gideon enters the story. Right? And we're going to pick up um, the story with Israel's sin in this next round of cycle, right before God calls Gideon as the next judge. So we're going to um, jump into the story here uh, in Judges chapter 6, okay, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10. So if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open with me to Judges chapter 6. If you don't have your own Bible or don't have it with you today, there are Bibles provided for you in the seat pocket, so you're, you're welcome to use, and you, you'll notice the page number is included on uh, where you can find this passage in those Bibles. Um, but as we're going to, again, jump into this story and and kind of sets the foundation for God raising up Gideon as the next judge. And so we're going to read here uh, Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 1. 
starting at verse 1, where it says, The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Meridian, Amalekak, uh, then the people of the east would attack Israel camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hoarders, coming with their livestock and tents, were as thick as locusts, and they arrived on droves of camels too numerous to count. And they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites, and then the, then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. When they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. And he said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live, but you have not listened to me. And so we're going to pause there and and again, as, as we see, we, we enter into this story in kind of the, the fourth time around this cycle, right, of where they, they sin against God and they're oppressed and then they, they, they finally call out to God and then God raises up a judge to deliver them. And, and yet we see in this cycle, right, then once they're delivered, then they end up in a peaceful time and they're walking with God for a little while, right, but then in their comfort, they they lose focus, they drift away and fall into sin again. Which again is where we see this first line of chapter 6, right? Was they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, and here we see again the cycle continuing in this downward spiral, which, and, and which we see here as the, that the Israelites are stuck in a cycle that was moving them further and further away from God. Okay, they are stuck in this cycle. They Again, and it continues to happen over and over and over again. And, and again, as we see, right, this cycle continue, okay, with every cycle and with every judge, they are getting further and further away from God. Okay, and again, they were, they were losing ground in their journey every time they went around the cycle. Now, every time they repent and they come back to God and, and they're close with him, but, but yet the next time they fall, they fall quicker, they fall farther Right? And they get further and further away from God. And so every time they come back, they, they're, 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 it's happening, happening quicker. And the cycle is moving them away, almost a further away from, from God. And their relationship is damaged more every time. Okay, they are stuck in this cycle. Okay, and yet we, we can identify with this. I mean, we, we see, again, we can, ourselves can get stuck into a cycle, you know, of, of sin and of repentance and and of, of feeling like we're always coming back. And we're, it's always one step back to God through, through his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. And we're right there. But yet, if we don't continue to deal with our sin, and especially a, a habitual sin or an addiction or something like that, that every time we, we get it, again, we relapse quicker and we're moving further and further away from God. And, and we see this, this truth, right? Is the fact either you are journeying closer to God every day or you're moving further away from him. Okay, you're never standing still. And even if you think you're sitting still in your journey and you think, I'm not losing ground, you, you really are losing ground in your journey. Because every time the cycle goes around, you're, 
you're, you're moving even just a little bit further and further away. Okay, and we see Israel is stuck in this cycle. Okay, and they're, and they're again, they're, they're, they're drifting further and further away from God as we see the book of Judges continue to progress. And we see, again, in, in Judges uh, verse 6, verse 1, okay, we see that it says the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. And so the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. Again, this was not a quick cycle. We see that this, you know, this, this judgment, I mean, it's happening over years, over, you know, generations. Right, and it says, so Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites, and then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. I encourage you to circle that word then on your outline. Okay, circle the word then, because, right, notice God had told them what to do. I mean, God said, go into, go into the, to this promised land, eradicate the people, get them out, because if you leave them there, they're, they're going to pull you away. Right, you're going to get distracted. You're going to get sucked into their culture. So right now, notice they didn't do what God told them to do. Right? And, and sure enough, they got sucked away. They got distracted. They got pulled away. And yet, they did not turn to God until everything was the worst it could be. When they finally, at the end of their rope, then they turned to God. Okay, and yet, we, we see that. Right? Again, that they didn't turn to God when things were just kind of bad. They, they turned to God when it was the worst it could get. Okay, which then brings us to the first lesson for us as we look at this cycle, as we look at this, uh, this history of Israel. Right? The lesson for us is that we need to make God our first priority, not our last resort. Because what, that's what we see Israel do, is they, they wouldn't turn to God until... Things could not get any worse, right? They got comfortable where they were. They were taking in their own power. They were doing all these things. And, and yet, when they had no other options, then they turned to God. And yet, the lesson is, if we keep God our first priority from the very beginning, we won't get to the end of our rope, right? We need to turn to God first, not last. Right? And we see the Israelites continue to do this as, they, as they're stuck in this cycle. But again, what does, what does God tell them through this prophet in verse 10? Right? This is what God tells them. He says, I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live, but you have not listened to me. Right? God is sitting back and looking at the Israelites like, guys, I told you this was going to happen. I told you what to do. I told you to focus on me, to not worship Follow the, their culture. Do not do any of these things. And yet, that's exactly what you did. I told you how to not end up here, but you did it anyways. Right? And, and if, if, again, God's telling them, like, I was in the first place. I told you what to do, but you didn't listen to me. If you listen, if you keep me your first priority, you will not end up in this cycle. But yet, Israel continued in this downward spiral. Again, lesson for us, right? That then is very, very big, right? Turn to God as our first priority, not our last resort, right? And as we start with that foundation, then we see God again redeem them by calling up Gideon. So we're going to pick up the story um, now when Gideon enters the story that the stage is set and now God calls Gideon and we're going to read verses 11 through 24, where it says, And the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah which belonged to Joash the, of the clan of Abizer. 
Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. And then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I'm sending you. But Lord Gideon replied, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least in, in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. And Gideon replied, If you are truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that that is really the Lord speaking to me. Don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. He answered, I will stay here until you return. So Gideon hurried home. He cooked a young goat with a basket of flour. He, he baked some bread without yeast and then carrying the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot, he brought them out and presented them to the angel who was under the great tree. The angel of God said to him, place the meat and the unleavened bread on this rock and pour the broth over it. And Gideon did as he was told. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and bread with the tip of the staff in his hand, and fire flamed up from the rock and consumed all that he had brought, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he cried out, O sovereign Lord, I'm doomed. I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. It is all right, the Lord replied. Do not be afraid. You will not die. And Gideon built an altar to the Lord there, and named it Yahweh Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. The altar remains in Ophrah in the land of the clan of Abizar to this day. And so as we see this, this interaction between Gideon and this angel, and, and as this angel shows up and, and tells Gideon, hey, like, you're going to be the one that's going to pull Israel out of this current funk that they're in. Okay, and yet we realize quickly that Gideon is pulled right into the same funk as the rest of the nation, right? He's right along with all of them, and there's a, there's a couple things that Gideon gets wrong, right, that God corrects throughout this conversation. Okay, the first thing that Gideon was struggling with was that Gideon was struggling with his own identity. Okay, and what we see again first is that Gideon was letting the wrong things define his identity. Okay, he was letting the wrong things define who he was. Again, Gideon was looking at all of the things of the world, right, and letting the things of the world define him, right, and then he, of course, then viewed himself in that way, right, and then would, would actually not act, right, and in fact, that was his argument with God. He's like, I can't do this. Again, what, what's the justification that he gives right, of why he cannot rescue Israel, right? We see in verse 15, Gideon says, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. Okay, now again, remember that the tribes of Israel, there are 12 tribes of Israel, okay? Manasseh is one of those tribes, okay? Gideon is looking at the angel and saying, hey, out of all of the tribes of Israel, like my family, the tribe of Manasseh, we're the least, like we're 12th on the list. Okay, like, we're the worst tribe. And then within that tribe, like, his family, he's like, my family is, is the worst of the worst tribe. 
Hey, Gideon is looking at this. He's like, if Gideon was on, you know, the playground waiting to get picked for kickball, he's always the last one picked. Okay, he's sitting there. He's like, I can't, you, can't, you can't do this through me. I am the worst of the worst. I'm the smallest of the smallest. Right? I, I mean, out of everybody who's afraid, I'm like afraid of those that are afraid. He's like, I, I cannot do this, Lord. Right? And, and Gideon, again, self-identifies himself because he's letting the world define who he is. He's letting the culture around him and the comparison to all these other people and all these things, he's letting that define him. And he's, he's looking at God and saying, God, thanks but no thanks because I am the worst of the worst. It's not going to happen. Right? And yet, according to the way, again, that the world defines people, right? Gideon was right. He was in the smallest tribe. He was the weakest family among the smallest tribe, right? And according to the world's way of ranking people, he was at the bottom of the list. But if we let the world and our culture determine our identity, then our focus is completely on the wrong thing. Right, because the truth is God determines our identity. Because again, look at how the angel first addresses Gideon. Okay, in verse, in verse 12, okay, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Why do you think the angel led with this? Hey, literally, this is how he gets his attention. I mean, he calls Gideon, right, by a completely different identity than what he sees himself at. And again, he's, he's saying, like, no, I'm, I'm the smallest of the small. I'm the worst of the worst. I'm the weakest of the weak. And yet, the Lord calls him a mighty hero. And he says, you are a mighty hero, and, and the Lord is with him. He's saying, you're not the weakest of the weak. You're not the smallest of the small. Right? Don't let the world define you. God redefines who Gideon is. Right? And he leads with that thought. Why does he lead with identifying him as a mighty hero because God knows that our identity will literally affect everything else in our life. Right? And God knew that Gideon was not going to be able to accomplish anything based on the identity that he had self-identified for himself. And so God says, no, that's not your identity, Gideon. Your identity is a mighty hero who the Lord is with. That's your real identity. Right? And the lesson for us is that since God made me and God saved me, then God gets to define my identity. Right? God gets to define who I am because God made me. Right? He made all of us. Right? God knows us better than we know ourselves. As Scripture says, right, he, he knits you together in the womb. Okay? God knows you better than anybody else. God knows you. And if you're walking with Jesus, God saved you which means God has the right and the authority to determine your identity. Not the world around you, not the culture, not what other people say, not even your parents. God does. Right? God has that right. He made you, he saved you, and he gets to define your identity. And guess what? Just as God defines Gideon's identity as a mighty hero, which is the opposite of the way Gideon saw himself, right? God looks at us and says, that when you follow Jesus, I will redefine your identity. 
That is exactly what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ becomes a new person. The old life is gone, and the new life has begun. Meaning when you follow Christ and receive him as your Savior, once you're saved, you get a new identity. Right? It doesn't matter the way all of your past, it doesn't matter the way you see yourself or how somebody else sees you, and it doesn't even matter if you're the last one picked for kickball. Right? Your identity is still mighty hero who the Lord is with. Right? And you are now a child of the one true king. Okay? And your identity is completely different, and it is defined by who God is, not by who I am. Right? So Gideon got his identity mixed up, but not only his identity, he also got his outlook messed up. Okay? Not only was his identity on the wrong thing, his outlook was on the wrong thing. Okay, because Gideon also was letting the past skew his outlook of the future. He was letting the past skew his outlook of the future. Right, we see again in verse 13 when, when Gideon replies, and he says, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all these miracles that our ancestors tell us about? I mean, they said the Lord brought us out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Again, he's looking at the past, and Gideon's having this, this pity party, right? He's looking at it, he's like, yeah, you know, if God showed up, he's not here now. And in fact, I think you can sense he's even questioning whether those miracles were even the truth. Right? He's like, I mean, we're all, are, are these ancestors, is history even actually accurate? Because I don't buy it. Right, and as he's, again, he's looking at the past, and he's letting it skew his view of the future. Right? And the truth is, whether your past has been full of good things, but especially if your past has been full of bad things, right, is those past experiences can, can easily skew our outlook of the future. Right? And either say, see how far I've fallen from God, or, or I, I'm unredeemable because of my past. And that is just simply not true. Right? God, God again, um, is, is going to move in a new direction. Right, in fact, and that's exactly what God tells Gideon in verse 16. Right, when the Lord said to him, I know I will be with you and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. He's like, Gideon, all that's in the past. The past is in the past. Let's move forward. And by the way, this is what you're going to do, mighty hero. Right, you're going to defeat the Midianites. And it's, it's not even going to be hard for you. Right, like, I, because with my power, with your identities, you live that out, right? It's going to be easy. Because I'm going to be with you. I'm going to walk with you. Right? And the lesson then for us is that God's character doesn't change, but his methods certainly do. Okay, God's character is always the same. He's the same God that took Israel out of Egypt, that did all those miracles and all those victories. It's the same God that led Joshua into the promised land and all those victories and all those things. The same God is walking with Gideon. God's character does not change. Right, but his methods, they, they change, they're all over the board. Right, and, and again, Gideon's life and what God's going to accomplish through Gideon is not the same that he did through Joshua. It's not the same as he did through Moses. Right, he's saying, no, I have a, I have a new plan for you, Gideon. Right, and it's the same God, right? God is still loving. God is still powerful. He's all-knowing. Right, God is still everywhere. I mean, the, same, the characteristics of God's character does not change, but his methods do. 
Right, in fact, your journey is going to look different than, than the person you're sitting next to. Right, and their journey is going to look different than mine. Right, and, uh, but yet, again, God's methods in all of our lives are different, but it's the same God and the same character. Okay, and it's the same power if we walk with him. Right, and our outlook can all be the same, right? That God wins. And in his character is this, but yet his methods will be different. And we see this concept in Romans 8.28. And it says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Again, all kinds of things can happen, right? It's going to be all over the board, right? What happens in the future, but yet God can use every single piece of it, right? God can even use your past, right? Whether it's been good or bad, right? God can look at that past and say, nope. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to repeat that or I'm not. Right? But again, he says, don't be defined by your past and don't let the past skew your view of the future, right? Because God can work all of it together. His methods can change. In fact, God might work a, a, a different way tomorrow in your life than he's worked in the past, right? His, his methods will change, but God's character never does. God is always loving, right? God is always all-powerful, right? God, God always loves you. You know, he has a plan for you and a purpose for you. That does not change. God has a purpose for you, and, and he can use all kinds of things to get you to see and fulfill that purpose. Even things that we think have nothing to do with each other all of a sudden get, get all connected. And I don't know if you had that experience, but at times, like, there's times in my life and my journey when I sat back and, like, I get there and God finally shows his plan, right? Getting God's, God's perspective is bigger than my, my current view, right? Sometimes we sit back and we're like, oh, that's what that conversation was about. That's why that song kept playing every time I got in the car. That's why that verse kept popping up in everything. That's why that person said that to me, right? We can look back and realize, oh, okay, God, I see what you're doing. Right? His methods can change, but his character always remains the same, right? And, and again, if, we're, if, we, if our identity is defined by God, Right, then through that identity, as we live out that identity, he guides our outlook about where we're headed, about what we're doing, right, and what the future looks like, and that gives us the hope right, and, and a comfort knowing that God is with us and we're moving forward. And it keeps us focused on the right thing, right, which is, again, our identity and what God's doing as we move forward. And then we see the story continue in verses 25 through 32. And this is now, Gideon is, is set straight by God and his identity, his outlook, and now he starts to move forward in his life as he acts and as he moves forward and lives out his identity. Verse 25, says, That night the Lord said to Gideon, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old. Pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar, using as fuel the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had commanded. But he did it at night because he was afraid of the other members of his father's household and the people of the town. Early the next morning, as the people of the town began to stir, someone discovered that the altar of Baal had been broken down and that the Asherah pole beside it had been cut down. And in their place, a new altar had been built. And on it were the remains of the bull that had been sacrificed. And the people said to each other, who did this? 
And after asking around and making a careful search, they learned that it was Gideon, the son of Joash. Bring out your son, the men of the town demanded of Joash. He must die for destroying the altar of Baal and for cutting down the Asherah pole. But Joash shouted to the mob that confronted him, Why are you defending Baal? Will you argue his case? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. And if Baal truly is a god, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. From then on, Gideon was called Jerubal, which means let Baal defend himself because he broke down Baal's altar. So now as we see, again, Gideon's actions now play out because of his identity and because of his outlook have been changed by God. Gideon now lives out this new identity in verses 25 through 29, right? He, he does what the Lord tells him to do. Okay, now what the Lord told him to do was very shocking in their culture. Because again, what was, what was their biggest mistake? Their first mistake was they worshiped other gods other than Yahweh, right? And then they got distracted and they, got, they worshiped idols. And, and now again, God says, nope, you got to get, get it right back. Start with their identity. They, he went back, he says, tear down that altar, tear down their shear pole, right? And, and make this altar to Yahweh. And that's exactly what Gideon does. Now Gideon was wise when he filled this out. Because, right, again, it says he did, he did it at night, right? Because, and, and again, he did that and so where they had to kind of investigate and figure it out, right? Because this huge change, right, and this, this move of direction for Israel, right? Had he done it right in front of everybody, and like, I mean, they would have just rioted and took him and stopped him from doing it, right? So he was wise as he carried out these plans, right? And yet he did it, though. He followed through, okay? And then, again, as we look at, at his his actions, right, as he filled out, fulfilled this purpose that God gave him to do, okay, we see Gideon living out his new identity. And as Gideon lives out his new identity and his new outlook, his actions affected those around him. Again, Gideon, his identity was now found as a mighty hero that the Lord was with, right? His outlook was that he could accomplish everything God did, and as he did it, Right? As he lived these out, it affected everybody around him. Obviously, it affected the people of the town and, and of his family. Right? As they all, and they all freaked out about the fact that, that the Asherah pole was gone and that the altar was gone and it had all been changed and that there, was a, 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 that there had been a sacrifice to, to Yahweh and not to Baal. Right? They all freaked out. It also affected his dad. Because remember, it, it was his dad's bull that was sacrificed. Okay, but also, who built the original altar to Baal that he tore down? His dad did. It was his dad's altar. Right? And yes, he tore it down as he redid it. Like, who defends Gideon? His dad. Right? Gideon getting his life straight, getting his, his, his life and his journey towards God and focusing on the right things and living out his identity deeply affected his family and everybody around him because it ends up pointing the entire nation back to God. Right? And as Gideon lives out his new identity and his new outlook, it deeply affected everybody else around him. And the same is true in your life and your faith journey. If you truly live out your faith journey, live out the identity that God gives you with a new outlook and fulfill everything that God puts you on, it will affect those around you. Right? It will. Okay, and as we see that, right, as it affects not just us, but all those around him, Okay, the, the lesson for us is this, is that we start with our identity, right? We have to start with our identity. Who are we in Christ as a follower of Jesus? Let God define us. 
right? Not the culture, not the people around us, not our family, not, not, not anything else other than God. God defines us. It starts with our identity. And as we live out that identity and truly feel that way about us, about ourselves, right, then it'll change our outlook. Right? And when it changes our outlook and it gives us fu- this hope into our life and, and we start living life with a new zeal and, and a new passion and, and all that because we're living out of our God-given identity, then it affects our actions. And then as our actions change, then it will affect all those around us. Right? And we see then, again, this is an ongoing cycle because the more we live out our actions, the more it shows us who we are in Christ. Right, as God's power is unleashed in our lives and those around us, and, and the stronger identity becomes in Christ, the more it changes our outlook. And, and the more our outlook changes, the more actions God leads us to. And this starts a whole new cycle in our life. But this cycle will actually take you closer to God every time the cycle comes around, not further away. But in fact, we see this cycle described in Romans chapter 2, or chapter 12, verse 2 where Paul tells us, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Again, what's the the first phrase of this verse? Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world. Again, uh, Paul's telling us, don't let the world define you. Again, your identity is not defined by the world or the culture or the people around you. Don't, don't copy that. Don't be defined by the world. Be defined by God. All right, then the next phrase, right? It says, but let God transform you into a new person. Right? God determines your identity. Right, and as God determines your identity, right, then you will continue to be transformed. And as you're transformed, right, then he changes the way you think. That's our outlook. Right? And as our outlook changes, then we will know God's will for you, your actions. Right? And the more that you fulfill those actions, right, the less you'll be defined by the world. And the less you're defined by the world, the stronger your identity becomes in Christ as you continue to be transformed. And the more you're transformed, the more your outlook is focused on God and what he's doing. And the more your outlook is focused, it affects your actions. And this starts a new cycle in our life. This, by the way, is a cycle you want to get stuck in because this cycle takes you closer and closer to God, right? Not like the cycle that we can so easily get entangled into sin that pulls us away, right? That's pulling us away from God. This is the cycle you want to get stuck in. Okay, and as we look at this cycle and we realize that, okay, we also need to realize that we cannot go straight at action. Okay, we need to respect this cycle that God works in our life. If we go straight to changing our actions, it will not last. Okay, but this is, this is a trap that we can fall into as Christians, right? especially as the church. We can focus on changing actions. And if we skip the first two steps, right, then all the church becomes is just behavior modification. And if all the church is is behavior modification, if all we do is just point fingers at people's actions, right, then it will not last, right, and it will give the church a reputation that we don't want. And by the way, that is our reputation in our culture today, is all we do is point fingers and accuse people's actions. 
right? And we, that's not a reputation we want to live into, by the way. Right? Christianity is not a behavior modification religion. It isn't. It was never designed to be that. Right? Because it has to start with our identity. And if we start with our identity, then it moves to our outlook. And our outlook will change our actions. And the more we follow God's will, the more it continues to transform our identity. And that's what we should be stuck in. That's what our reputation should be. Right? And as we look at that, again, it brings us then to our final thought this morning. And that is this. That God's plan for you is bigger than your viewpoint. So what changes needed to start a positive cycle in your life? What, is, what changes needed to start a positive cycle in your life? Right? A cycle that we want to replicate, that gets us closer to God, not a cycle that we're stuck in that's pushing us away from God. Again, I don't know what changes needed in your life to start a positive cycle, but I hope that you'll commit that to God today. Right? Maybe it's just, again, your outlook's different. Maybe your focus is your identity. Maybe it's just, receive, again, receive Christ as your Savior for the first time today that will change your identity right, from, from sinner to God's child, right, or change your outlook. I don't know what change is needed in your life, but get stuck in the right cycle. Right, and I hope that you'll do that today. Again, whatever God's leading you to do, I hope that you'll, you'll give that today. Lord God, that's our prayer this morning, Lord, that you would enter our life. God, you would take over even when we wander. God, we can ask for help. And God, help us to focus on the right things, Lord, not focus on the, the way the world defines us, Lord, but how you define us. God, do not focus on the past, God, but on where you're moving us to in the future. God, help us, Lord, to, to live out, Lord, our, our God-given identity. God, in the hope that you bring us, Lord, through our actions. And God, may our actions, Lord, as we just serve you with everything we have, Lord, continue to transform us. God, to make us more like you tomorrow than we are today. And God, as we live out our faith, God, may that light shine in this world that so desperately needs you. And God, we pray, Lord, that they wouldn't see behavior modification, but Lord, they would see you and your spirit and your power. God, and how you re want to redefine even who they are. God, as we go this week, as we continue to journey in our faith and move closer and closer to you, God, use us, Lord, to draw others close to you as well. Lord, our actions affect those around us. And we shine your light in this dark world. Lord, guide us as we go today. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for Gideon. Lord, as he made it through, Lord, focusing on the wrong things, we pray you do the same for us this week. Guide us as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.